Hello, and welcome to Breast Cancer Conversations, a podcast brought to you by survivingbreastcancer.org. I'm Laura Carfing, breast cancer survivor and founder of survivingbreastcancer.org, a nonprofit organization providing community, education, and resources to empower those diagnosed with breast cancer and their caregivers from day one and beyond. Hello, it's so great to be with all of you today. For those of you joining us for the first time, welcome. For those of you who tune in each week, it's great to have you back. I feel compelled to provide you with as much information, support, and resources as I can through our show, our interviews, and my own personal experience with breast cancer. The interviews and connecting with all of you is the fun part, but there is a lot of sweat that come with the relentless hours of post-production and editing we do each week to bring our podcast to life. I have to give a shout out to our newest sponsor, Podigy. We all wear many hats, and I think most of you know that I am no exception, hosting the podcast, running a nonprofit, and working a full-time job. But my heart and soul could not be more passionate and committed each week to delivering inspiration, hope, and support. That's why I've made the decision to team up with Podigy. If you have a podcast or thinking about starting one, I highly recommend them. They are super easy to work with and are offering our listeners 25% off your first month when you mention Breast Cancer Conversations. We know cancer takes a village, and I'm glad to have Podigy part of my support team. Hey, everyone. Welcome to today's episode. We are speaking with Veronica, who is joining us today from New York City, from the Queens area. She is going to share with us a deep dive on her particular diagnosis of stage two breast cancer and her decision to have a single mastectomy. She goes into the depths of how to prepare for surgery, what to expect going through and after surgery. We talk about drains, cleaning the drains. We talk about radiation, chemotherapy, port placement. I love her honest storytelling. It's very genuine, and I know you guys are going to appreciate this. Welcome to the conversation. So welcome to Breast Cancer Conversations. And today we're speaking with Veronica, and I believe you're out of New York? Yes, I am. Excellent. And you were diagnosed in 2017? Yeah, well, toward the latter part of 2017, that's when I started, you know, my journey. I had the mammogram, I had a sonogram, and then I ultimately went for a biopsy at the end of 2017. And um, I got the official diagnosis January 3rd of 2018. Okay. And to give some context as well, if you're comfortable sharing, do you mind letting our listeners know, like, if you're married or single, divorced, have children, like any like demographic information? Because I know a lot of times too, it's, you know, I was diagnosed at 34, not married, no kids, right? And so... I'm really able to connect with that population of women who are premenopausal and have gone through a breast cancer diagnosis and questions around fertility, for example. I know other women have, you know, just got diagnosed after having like a newborn or a two-year-old and how do you navigate that path? So any additional context that you'd like to provide? I was 59, 59 when I started my journey and I am a, I'm single, never been married. No children. Okay, so we relate there. <laughs> yeah. Cheers. <laughs> so, um, yeah, single, never married. Part of my journey also includes having had, had, had to have a hysterectomy about 23 years ago, 1996. Okay. I had to have a hysterectomy. So I believe, you know, all that somehow ties into how I 
you know, arrived at this day. So for those of you tuning in today, uh, Veronica sent me this lovely survivor story that I will be publishing also on our website and highlighting in our newsletter after this recording. But I thought I would open everything up with her first paragraph just to give everyone some background because it's so beautifully written. So I'm just going to read this for a moment. And thank you, Veronica, for sharing. So in Veronica's voice, she says, I had been feeling a rather strange pain in my right breast for a few weeks in the summer of 2017. I didn't think much of the pain at first. In my mind, I thought it was from the towel that I used to wrap around myself. Perhaps I was wrapping it too tight. I hadn't been to the GYN for a few years, so an examination was in order. I had started a new job and wanted to be successful. I was taking care of everyone else and not myself. I finally went to the mobile mammogram van, which was on site at my new job. I could hear the technician say she felt a lump in my breast. Needless to say, I was devastated because now I had to go in for further testing. I felt alone because I was alone in the big city of New York. In the last few weeks, I had undergone more tests, a sonogram, and finally a biopsy. I would go on to a breast specialist only to have them blurt out the words, you have cancer. It was discovered that I had two pea-sized lumps in my breast. The diagnosis was stage two breast cancer. I was one in eight. Wow. Mm. Wow. I'm sorry to make you relive this. I tell all of the guests on well, the show. It's, it's, it's okay because a flood of emotions come through, you know, just being alone and living in New York City and having, I, I must share also that, you know, a lot of us live far apart from our families. And my sister happened to live in Virginia and my mother lives in North Carolina. So most of these initial tests, I would say I went by myself. Mm-hmm. I had to learn how to um, be strong, not cry in public, though you want to cry, but you can't cry, expecting, you know, that first doctor, she blurted it out, you have cancer. She didn't even, she hadn't even done a biopsy yet, mm-hmm. you know, and I happened to be at the doctor that day too by myself. So that was the devastating part of all this, you know, you should try to prepare somebody and say, look, are you here or are yourself? Um, did you come with somebody? Before you give such a devastating diagnosis. And needless to say, I never went back to that particular doctor. And that's such an important point to make that, you know, I, I tell technicians or radiologists or who's ever reading your, your x-rays to say, you know, this is your day job and you see this every single day, but this is the first time I'm hearing the news. And so you really have to put that perspective on when you're delivering this information to somebody who don't always know the words. I know when I was going through all of this, I didn't really understand the difference between a lumpectomy and a mastectomy. And, you know, I throw around these words all the time now because this is the work that we do, but I have to remind myself as I'm providing education to other people, they might not know the difference, right? And it's a whole new vocabulary. And, you know, the frightening statistic of one in eight, chances are we know somebody who's gone through breast cancer, um, a relative or a friend or a neighbor. But until you really go through it yourself, there are so many question marks and it's really hard to put yourself in that person's shoes. It is. And I never, you know, in a million years, I would have never perceived this diagnosis for myself because as I discussed earlier, I had been through... um, I had a myomectomy, which is where the fibroids, they just take out the fibroids. And, you know, I had that procedure and then to have to go through a hysterectomy. And I was like, for the rest of my life, I used to just say 
dear Lord, let me keep my breath. You know, I, I lost the other female part of my body that we identify with as woman. And now here I am, you know, 20 years later, you know, having to, you know, deal with another ma major diagnosis in my life, you know, and that I found to be quite a challenge, you know, and as I said in my piece that I submitted, it was very, you know, just knowing you have to go through this, you know, they tell you the difference between the lumpectomy and the mastectomy. And, you know, for me, it was just, you know, go straight and have the full breast removed. And that's ultimately what I did. So you ended up having like the double mastectomy or just a single? I just had the single mm -hmm. because there were no signs of, I think the term is remarkable or unremarkable. So when they look at your films, when you go to, you know, to have your mammograms, they use that terminology. So my left breast didn't show any signs of cancer. So at the time, I just opted to have the one breast removed. Absolutely. And that makes a lot of sense, too. I know ethically, a lot of doctors have conversations with patients around, you know, the ethical choices around removing healthy tissue. And so some of us want to do the bilateral because we just want it out of mind, out of sight, not to worry about it. And, you know, it's, it's a deep conversation to have because, you know, you're not going to cut out your stomach if you have a tummy ache, right? Or It's true. It's true. So I opted, I opted to keep it in, you know, because it was tough enough going through the procedure. If I may share, once you have the surgery, you have two tubes coming out of your breast and each day you have to remove the fluid and you have to count the cc. So you have to count the amount of liquid that's being drained out each day. So for me, just have, you know, if you had a double, you have to do, I think it, you have to do four drainage places. And I mean, for me, I was here by myself. I, my sister came for the week, the first week, and she was here with me. And I did utilize the services of the visiting nurse services. Yes. And they came to my house and they took my temperature and they changed my bandages. That was very, you know, uplifting, you know, and I had the support of my mother and sister. But, you know, once again, for the most part, you know, I had to go it alone, you know, and um, that doesn't happen to many people. But for me, you know, I was faced with that and it was nothing that I could do. I had to make the best of it. But um, as I stated earlier, I went through every emotion possible to go through. You know, you get hurt, you get upset, you cry, and then you lift yourself up and you begin your fight. And that's what I did. I don't know how, you know, I don't know where the strength came from because, you know, as I, I considered myself my whole life to be kind of, um, you know, not the strong one. I was, I felt like, I, you know, I was the youngest sister. I was babied. And I always never knew I had that in me. Mm. And um, I somehow, I, I, I summon the strength, you know, because when I tell you um, it's not an easy journey, but once you make up your mind that you have no choice, you, you, you go through it. Yeah, somehow you muster up that courage. And, and people were nice to me because I recall when I went for that first mammogram, it was raining, it was pouring. Somebody was supposed to come pick me up, but they never did. So I ended up taking three buses and ultimately getting to the appointment late. And then they said they had to inject me. I had to drink some fluid or some silver stuff 
Mm-hmm. And that's when I broke down because I, I mean, I'm a person, I have a lot of allergies. I said, oh my goodness, I got to think about this. So they were ready to go home. So they ultimately said, okay, we're going to have to reschedule you. But what came out of that was one of the nurses, she just came over to me and she hugged me. Wow. And she hugged me. And that, that meant more to me than, you know, than anything in the world at that particular moment. And then they sent me home in a car service. And I didn't have to pay. So, you know, there are some rainbows. There are some rainbows and some beautiful days that come out of such, you know, when you have to go through this. Absolutely. You know, I'd like to linger a little bit on your description of your surgery. This is something we actually haven't taken a deep dive in yet on the podcast. And I'm lining up some guests to talk specifically about surgery. So I would, I know you talked a little bit about the drains, but for someone who hasn't had their surgery yet, do you mind telling me a little bit about, you know, you're getting prepared for your surgery, you go in and, you know, the questions that we get all the time is like, how do you manage the pain? What are the bandages like? I've heard this, like, almost like a chastity bra, right? Like the compression is so tight Mm -hmm. while you're going through healing. So I would love for you to like, take us through your experience so that we can hear how you managed all of this. The actual day of the surgery, you know, you get ready, you get dressed, you, you know, your, your sister, your, your friends come over, they take you to the hospital and then you're whisked away to this med surge area where they begin to prep you and they take your temperature tell you to go to the bathroom if you have to go to the bathroom. And then, you know, they start an IV. The only way I can say for me to manage the pain, you can't be afraid. You can't be fearful. I don't know. I sometimes wish somebody had have prepared me and said, you know, you're going to be going through a lot. You're going to have needles. You're going to have IVs. And even the day of my surgery, I was told to get there so early. And I didn't realize what kind of testing they were going to have to do. I thought it was just a normal getting you ready for surgery. But what happened was, I guess they have to see exactly, um, align everything. So when they do the actual surgery, they have to know, I guess, the alignment of where the tumors were. And they wheeled me into a room. And that's when, you know, the technician described to me, that she was going to have to give me four needles in my breast. Mm. And it was, it was at that time that I just, you know, I had to go into myself and I think you almost have to rise above yourself to say, you know, I already have pain. I've been walking around with these lumps in my breast for nearly 12 weeks because, you know, the original mammogram was November 8th. And then, you know, my surgery wasn't until February 26th. So you, you know something is growing in you and you could feel it. And then they say, oh, miss, we have to, you know, take, we have to in, put um, four needles in your breast. So, but I thank, I thank um, the universe for having such a, a nice technician again, because we were in a room that you could not come out of. I know my sister was right outside the door. And you want to go and you want to get one last hug, but you can't. Right. So I ultimately made it through that. And, you know, and they wheeled me back upstairs to prep me for the actual surgery. Now, I don't know if it's like this in other states, 
maybe, you know, so you have to actually walk yourself into the OR. Mm. So no more getting a, a pill to relax you and being wheeled in and being groggy. You have to put yourself on the gurney and you have to see all the nurses and everybody working to prepare you. This was like my third or fourth surgery at this particular facility. So I wasn't so nervous. I had met my anesthesiologist prior to, I think I met him that morning and he was, he was a wonderful man. And he put me at ease and he told me exactly what he was going to do. And when I got into the operating room, he came, you know, and, and, and I was asleep in like, you know, five seconds, you know, you're told to <laughs> Amazing count. how that you're works, told right? to count. Yes. And he, he was, and you know what? I ultimately requested him for my next procedure, you know, and I know it was unheard of because I'm calling my doctor and I'm like, I've got to have that anesthesiologist back. You know, and they said, well, no one has ever done that before. I said, well, you know what? If I have to be put to sleep again, I want him. Yes. So I, I ultimately woke up, I guess, about three or four hours later. It's only one night stay in the hospital, believe it or not. You know, you, you have your, your a major, I consider it a major surgery. Oh, I do too. Absolutely. I want to back up just a little bit when you were talking about these four needles that they put in your breast, because I'm sure the questions are going to be like, oh my God, like what's going to happen to me before surgery? Why are there going to be more needles? And to provide some clarity, please feel free to jump in if I'm adding something that did not happen. But this also happened to me to get the needles put in my breast before surgery. And this all happened for at my institution in the radiology department. So they did all sorts of like excretions x-rays and then also ultrasounds because, you know, unbeknownst to me, it's not like you go into surgery, they open you up and your cancer is like this big purple thing and they can see it and just pull it right out. They open you up and they have no idea what the cancer looks like. So these needles are actually like the dotted lines to let the surgeon know what the access is and where, you know, like coordinates, you know, X and Y, where the tumor is. So that way they can extract that. Okay, well, that that's what I ultimately figured out. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I imagine that my physicians didn't want to ultimately, you know, make me become so terrified. Mm -hmm. But I was not I was not prepared for that. And I think sometimes, you know, we need to be prepared just just so we have some idea so we can prepare. A lot of this is mental. Oh, it and is. Um, I think well, 90% of getting through you know, the, the, the sonograms and the examinations and the IVs, a lot of it is mental. Um, but I was never told what kind of tests, you know, were going to be given. Even for me throughout my journey, I found it a little, um, even when I first went to the oncologist, I'm expecting him to come out with a, 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 a folder with this is your diagnosis and this is your treatment. And and I ultimately, I just, I have it to this day, I got a sticky note. I got a sticky note with my diagnosis and my chemo treatment schedule. And, and I'm just waiting for a folder or something to come and it ultimately never came. So I had to do my own research and I had to be proactive. You have to learn how to ask questions and be proactive. You know, uh, I did find that my oncologist kept, he kept saying, do you have any more questions? Do you have any more questions? 
And I'm like, I'm new to this. I didn't even know what to ask, honestly. You know, once you get past the initial shock, mm-hmm. you know, but I learned, I learned as I went, you know, how to do research and how to find out what was going on with my body. And um, yeah. Yeah, no, I know. It's like you, you don't know what questions to ask if you've never been through this before. Like, you don't, you don't. Yeah. And they've been through this before with other patients, you know, mm-hmm. so, um, but they want you to, I guess, to learn how to ask and speak up for yourself, you know, and, and that's what I learned how to do. Yeah, exactly. And I think the flip side is too, from the oncologist's perspective, I completely agree. They should tell you as much information as possible because we don't know what to ask, but I do just plain devil's advocate understand that some people don't want to know all the information because it's overwhelming and scary. Now, I'm not it a, is. like I want to know as much as possible, but I can kind of see that delicate dance between we need to tell you what you need to know today because your diagnosis may change. We haven't done all the tests yet. Your response to the chemo may change, you know, so navigating something and I'm, I'm a type A person. Like I want all the information. I need a plan. I need a schedule. <laughs> right. I need a folder. Yes. I need to know what's going on. <laughs> well, I would love to partner with you. One of the things that I want to do for our website is actually create a downloadable PDF that people can just take from our website as like, these are the top oh, yes. questions you should bring with you when you're meeting with a radiologist, with a surgeon, with an oncologist, with your primary care, just so they have like a roadmap, right? I think a roadmap would be wonderful. It, it would outline, it would give the um, the newly diagnosed a roadmap to know where to go. I mean, because look, I live in the greatest city in the world and my treatment was fragmented, you know, and, and I found that to be very difficult too. You know, a, a friend of mine, said, why didn't you go to Memorial Sloan Kettering? You know, the biggest cancer hospital I would say in the world, but I happen to have gone to a doctor who was associated with another hospital. And that's where I ultimately went for treatment. To this day, I'm okay with it now. But at first I said, gosh, am I shortchanging myself, mm-hmm. you know, by not going into the city, but I didn't have the, res- I didn't have the tools to get me into Manhattan because I live in the outer boroughs sure. and I had to get to all of these appointments by myself. So I ultimately stayed in the borough of Queens and that's where I had my treatment. And I think that's really important. These are all these outside factors that come into play. I'm in Boston and something very similar happened to me. Everyone just assumed I went to Dana-Farber because they're the most well-known cancer institute here. And I'm like, no, actually I went to another institute because one, it was closer to my house. If I had to be there every week for chemotherapy or there was something soothing, just knowing like it was close enough. I could technically pop in if I needed to, (laughs) you know, but it wasn't a huge ordeal because cancer is stressful enough. And it is, you know, anything that you can do to mitigate that stress, even in terms of like travel is important. It plays a role. Right. And you know what? You do have to be your own advocate. I learned that there are services available to even help people get to their chemotherapy. In the city, in New York, we have a car service that will take you. You know, you do have to pay for it, but there are, like, if you go through the American Cancer Society, 
they can hook you up with people who do this as part of their giving back to the world. Yes. And they, they take some people. Um, ride for recovery. Program. You know, mm-hmm. yes, yes. So there, there are uh, programs out there that will help people get through this diagnosis. You know, you just have to find out what's available. But I did, if I might, we were talking about the surgery a lot. Can I, I wanted to talk about the reconstruction part of it as well. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, so the day of the surgery, you wake up and you have what they call an extender place where your breast used to be. Mm-hmm. So every week, every week or every other week, you go see your plastic surgeon and he puts saline in the temporary implant. So it ultimately stretches your skin. So when you get the permanent implant, you you don't want to have that tent, that tight, tense skin. However, some of the contraindications are that the radiation makes your skin tight. Now, mm-hmm. I had to have 25 rounds of radiation. Okay. And Laura, I, I, got, I must share with you, I thought chemo, I thought chemo was going to be bad. And you think, oh, radiation, you just sit there, you sit on a table. Radiation in and of itself was difficult. It, it wasn't as I, easy as I, in my mind, thought it would ultimately be. What made it so difficult? Well, well what first, I guess, what made it so difficult that you have, you have a schedule that you must maintain. So I started mine on October 31st on Halloween, and I ultimately went um, until December 11th. You have to get fitted. You have to get a cast made mm-hmm. so that when they align you again under the machine, under the radiation treatment, that they put it in the perfect position. There's two parts that made it difficult. And then I wasn't told how to treat my skin. Really? So what we, we don't realize is radiation is like the sun. A mm-hmm. hundred times it's to the 10th power. Mm-hmm. And by the end of those 25 rounds, I was burned. And it wasn't until my final week that, that one of the technicians said, oh, you have to put at night, you should be putting heavy cream or lotions or this. And, you know, in the interim, you know, I wasn't doing that. And one day, one morning, I woke up and the, my skin just shredded. It just fell off. And I wasn't prepared. I wasn't prepared for that. I took pictures. I, I, I remember that day. It was almost as the day your hair falls out from chemo. Yes. I'm shocked to hear that no one told you about like lotion and how to take care of your skin while going through radiation. I don't recollect. Um, they, I, I don't because I would have done something because I would have paid closer attention to that area. Mm hmm. You know, but I mean, I, I don't, I wouldn't, you know, say anything negative about the diet. I had a wonderful um, doctor who, who um, guided me through the radiation. She was marvelous and very empathetic. You know, it was just something that was not discussed until it was like almost over and too late. Too late. Um, well, we'll definitely put that on our roadmap. So we'll add that to make sure that people know. Yes. And, and I had a, a, a profound thing happen to me almost on the final day of radiation. As I mentioned, we have this car service that picks you up. So I had made an appointment through 
an app, which most of us use apps these days. Mm -hmm. So the car service came to pick me up and he takes me to a private house. And I said, this is not where I'm supposed to go. I said, I'm going to the hospital. I'm going to, you know, New York Presbyterian. And he says, well, I'm sorry, miss. Now, the men who work for these people that pick you up, they know they're dealing with medical patients, cancer patients, people going for treatment. So I just, you know, to make a long story short, I was kicked out of the car. What? I was, I was kicked out of the car. He said he didn't have to take me anywhere else. He called his supervisor. I called the, um, we call it assessor ride. I called them up and I said, look, I'm being put out. The man doesn't want to um, take me to where I'm supposed to go. There was a problem with the, with the app. So he jumped out of his car. He pulled the car door open and he said, get out. And I said, you're going to put a cancer patient out in the street. It was 630 in the morning. It was like 25 degrees. And he just kicked me out. I was left on the street for nearly an hour in a strange neighborhood that I didn't know. People were in private houses. I suspect (laughs) that they was like looking at this woman just standing there. So that that, that was another thing. Excuse me? I hope you reported him. This sounds... Oh, you know, I did. I called my borough president. I called all I could. I didn't get the the satisfaction that I think I should have gotten. You know, they told me that he no longer works for the car service and blah, blah, blah. And I just, you know, there's a lot of things that that have gone wrong with this particular company, this car service. But that was the ultimate. So I had I had to overcome that as well. And it just makes you stronger, even though like, I'm, you know, you, you always have to learn a lesson, but it's like, I didn't, I didn't need that particular lesson. No, of course. You and know, it's so hard because you're, we're already a vulnerable population managing cancer. Yes. As you mentioned, if we don't have friends or family nearby to help us get to and from, we're relying on these other services. And there are a lot of great reputable ones through nonprofit organizations, but at the same time, it's risky. Like I even think getting into like the Uber or Lyft cars, like back in the day, you would never get into like a stranger's car. So never, never. And now you have to rely on them to, to live your daily life. Yeah. I had a question about your reconstruction, actually two questions. When you were going in for your, um, the saline every week to like get filled with additional CCs, did you still have your drains from the surgery at the time or did they wait for the drains and everything to heal before starting that process of inflating the saline? Yes, I believe the drains, the drains ultimately came out maybe two or three weeks after the surgery. Yeah, they would, uh, by the time I started going to the plastic surgeon, the drains were gone. Okay. Yeah, but, I, and I can, I, I just want to share this with you as well. The drains just hang. Yeah. And there's nothing to secure <laughs> them. So I came up with this method that I put my little drainage in a sock and I attached it to my gown or my blouse that I was wearing out that day because I, I was going to the doctor the plastic surgeon, and I saw a few of my fellow survivors with, they would just had their drainage just hanging and showing. And I was like, you know, um, you should probably protect that a little bit more because ultimately it's just really sticking under your skin, you know? So we have to be very protective 
of um, those tubes that are hanging from us, you know, after surgery. Exactly. So they're they're coming out of your sides to collect the excess blood. And if you think about it, you know, it's it's draining the blood, but at the same time, it is open. And so you need to protect it so that you don't get infections. And what you were mentioning earlier, like cleaning the drains and emptying the drains and making sure that you're using sterile products is really important. Yes, it's really important. And and um, fellow fellow survivors should, should be aware of that. I like the sock idea. I haven't heard that one before. That makes a lot of sense. Oh, yes. Yes, it did. It did. Well, you know, I like to think of things to help myself. And I said, hmm, I'm going to put a sock on it. And it worked out well. And then you just safety pin it to your shirt or to your gown? I did. I did. Yeah. What did I end up doing? I ended up going like, you know, at Target or like TJ's or anywhere, they have those like champion zip up like workout shirts. Oh, yeah. They're like wicking because I had the worst hot flashes too. So I needed like a wicking shirt. Okay. And those zip up little jackets, they have little pockets on the inside. So I just stuck my drains in those pockets. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. You become creative. We have to learn how to be creative and think on our feet, you know. And and, um, I ultimately, this process for me took about 17 months, if you can imagine. Yeah. So tell me the time frame. So I know what one thing I thought was amazing is that your employer brought a mammogram van to your to your place of work, which I think is phenomenal. That, that's an amazing. HR yes, service. that happened to be coming through the nursing department. Oh, OK. The nur- there was a group of students who were studying to be nurses and they are the ones that um, were responsible for having, you know, because I can only imagine if I didn't go that particular day, I might have delayed it some more. That that van, that mobile mammogram, that really pushed me to go ahead and do it because, as I had mentioned earlier, my my GYN retired, and I had been looking for him for about six months, couldn't find him, and you know I had the mammogram mailed to him, and he ultimately said, "Oh, not to worry." It's just a cyst. Mm. So for 24 hours that night, I almost, I, I, had, I had some relief. You know, I said, oh, a cyst, you, that, you'll be all right. <laughs> so when I, <laughs> you know, needless to say, when I, you know, 24 hours late, I was hit with that, you have cancer, exclamation point. It was like, oh, okay. I, I you know, I should have known, but, um. Yeah, so it took 17 months. I had that extender in me for from February 26th until July 30th of 2019. Oh, wow. And it, it, it was, um, I don't know for you if you, you um, ultimately went through that, that process, but the extender is, uh, um, you know, they encourage you to go for reconstruction. I was told, oh, you're still young. You still have a lot of life to live. Go ahead and go for that reconstruction. But again, nobody tells you that it's, it's, I think it's a plastic plate or it's metal that they put on your breast that pushes out the skin, but you, it, it, you can feel it, you know, so there's no, no way you can move throughout the day and not feel that extender in you. Okay. And um, I had that in me for, for 17 months and it ultimately was finally replaced with the permanent implant last year. 
Okay. And is that 17 month period, is that typical? Is that what someone could expect? Oh, I think that's what someone could expect. I mean, give or take a week or so, a month or two, because, you know, going every week, every other week, it becomes harrowing, you know, it's just nonstop running to the doctors. But I, I would think that was typical. So I think that's a typical time frame. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sure it depends on the person. And then, of course, like what size they're looking to expand towards, too. I'm sure it plays a role. Right. For me, I, w- I didn't want to make a big deal of it. Like, you know, I didn't want to say I didn't want to be a 40D or this and that. I just wanted to, you know, I wanted to be even. Mm-hmm. But what I find now, um, Laura, is that my left breast, which is my um, the breast that I still have, it's not the size of the reconstructed breast. Mm-hmm. So therefore, I, I'm scheduled to have one more final procedure where the surgeon is going to graft. Um, he's going to take fat from my stomach and he's going to place it around my implants. Oh, okay. And Yes. And I'm told that will make me more comfortable because believe it or not, I, it's not a phantom pain, but I still have a pain behind my chest wall where my breast used to be. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's a daily thing that I have. So he says that once they do the fat, you know, take the fat from my tummy and put it around my breast that somehow, I guess that probably will take the pressure off of that breastbone, that breast wall, and make me just a little bit more comfortable. So I will ultimately end up having had three surgeries. Wow. I know it's, it's scary too. I talked to a lot of women and, you know, you, we, we use the terms as we started off, like a lumpectomy or a mastectomy, and you think it's just one surgery. And what we don't realize is that, and you don't have any complications to date that we've discussed. So right away, everything seems to be going normally, knock on wood, you're healthy, great recovery. But Mm -hmm. one breast cancer diagnosis has led to three surgeries. I mean, that's something that I don't think we talk about up front when we're looking at our surgery options. Right. And, And it's three plus another surgery to put the port in. Oh, right. Yes. So, <laughs> so that's four. I didn't, you know, that's four. And, you know, I, I even tried to ask him, do I have to have a port put in, mm-hmm. you know, um, because again, you have to get anesthesia, you have to go to sleep, you have to arrange to get to the hospital, but they said you have to get a port put in and you have to have it in for five years. So as of April 30th will be two years. So I have to keep it in for three more years. You know, you try to learn to live around it, but I'm I'm not ashamed of it because if you wear like a blouse that shows your, your decollete, your, your neck area, mm-hmm. it's going to show, it's going to show. But um, right. I guess that's the least of my worries now is, is worrying about somebody seeing my port, right. but yes. I definitely want to talk about your port and, you know, the purpose of the port and like your, your treatment for the next five years. But real quickly, as you're mentioning this new surgery of going back to do the fat grafting, um, which I think is excellent. It sounds like you were in a little bit of discomfort and pain and that the doctors are coming up with a solution. 
Was there ever a conversation about doing a reduction or surgery on your healthy breast so that it would match the size and shape on the other side? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Well, what happened, what ultimately happened was they they put a smaller implant in my left breast and they did, um, they, um, they, they lifted it. Oh, okay. So, yeah, so they put a small implant and they lifted it. So it's come a long way because as you know, gravity pulls us (laughs) down. So our breasts are part of that. So they, as I got older, you know, like I said, I'm 59 years old Mm -hmm. and and it has started to gravitate south, I guess, but they, uh, they lifted it up. But um, the tender part is they, they cut around your nipple and that's how they get the implant in. Yeah. So yeah, they did. And he's going to ultimately lift it some more when I go in for the fat grafting. Yes. You know, so he'll lift it one more time. And I think, you know, at that point, I will be, I will be thankful that my procedures are over, you know, because um, I've had a few in my lifetime. This will be like the seventh time I've been put to sleep. Sure. So I think I'll be finally um, happy to say, you know, I'm at a point where I need to be. And, you know, if I don't, you know, and then I'll have in three years, I'll have to have the port removed. Right. You know, God willing. So we said we would talk about my five year. Yes. And I also know, too, with radiation, that could also change the size of the affected breast. Um, I hear it's very common that after radiation, that it can actually shrink or even if you have nipple sparing uh, mastectomy, you know, your nipple might move to one direction and no longer be centered. So again, I think as a rule of thumb, my radiologist was telling me, let things settle for a year because you're still trying to discover that new body. I think you were referencing some of that phantom pain. Your nerves are still trying to, you know, reconnect or at least trigger. They might not ever reconnect, but in a year sounds like a lifetime, but like my body's still changing too. And it's, I think it's just part of the process. So you got this port place. place. So are you going through chemotherapy now? Um, no, I, I can say that um, September, October 12, 2019 was the, I was, no, I was, my chemo, I'm, I've been done with chemo for almost a year plus. Congratulations. That's good. Thank you so much. Thank yes. you. Yes, I started, I started chemo May of 2018. So I had a period where after the surgery, I was just home recuperating and then the plan of action was put in. So I had to have four rounds of one drug and then 12 rounds of Taxotir. The first drug, I should remember the name, but I don't remember the name. I just know we called it the Red Dragon. Oh, yes. The adriamycin and cytoxin combo. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Oh, oh, you're good to, re- to to remember the name. Well, that one has a reputation, let me tell you. <laughs> I was on that too. Oh, my gosh. To my fellow survivors or listeners, it's the nurse has to, you know, you get your IVs, you go in and they give you a few drugs before you get there. And toward the end of the infusion, the nurse has to come and sit next to you. And she has to infuse it into the other IV. And that procedure takes about 15 minutes. And, mm-hmm. and you know, and it comes through you. The red 
the red dragon comes right through you. I must say, though, I didn't, I really didn't get sick from, you know, the cytoxin. It wasn't until I ate something bad. I ate some, I ate, I ate some fried chicken. Oh, okay. Two weeks after my original chemo. And that's when everything in me just did a 180. And I just felt as though my insides were burning. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I say that to say, I don't, I think it was the food because I was doing okay after those first two yeah. chemos. But, um, well, I had to completely change you know, my diet. I like no fried food, okay. no spicy food. My taste buds changed. Like I was, it was like bland. I was like yes. spaghetti with a little bit of olive oil. And like, that was all like, mm-hmm. like very plain. Oh my gosh. Food. I know. Mm-hmm. I don't even recall having a desire to eat, to tell you the truth. When I was going through the, the, um, the cytoxin, people were encouraging me to eat, but you almost feel like zombie-like. Yes. It knocks you out. So I didn't eat much. I ultimately lost 20 pounds. Wow. And I'm trying. I haven't regained it as yet because, you know, my, my doctor, my surgeon said, enjoy Enjoy losing the weight, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so I lost the 20 pounds and I'm like I said, I'm trying to keep it off. But um, yeah, and then I found the next, the tactile tear wasn't as bad, you know, it, it, and it was almost as if I, 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 will, hmm, I don't know what word to use, but after going through four rounds of, of the intense chemotherapy medications and then, you know, being transposition to just the the taxateer it was almost I was like wow the side effects were not nearly as strong and I was able to maintain you know some kind of semblance in my life so so um I was thankful for that yeah I was very thankful for that did you work during this time no I did not okay so you're able to really focus on your health yeah, well, you know what? I went out on family leave, FMLA. Mm-hmm. You know, I was at a point in my life I had already worked 22 years. I worked at a, I worked at St. John's University. Oh, okay. And yeah, I was a college. I was an advisor in the College of Pharmacy. I did that for 12 years. I helped students get through their program of study, mm-hmm. and it was it was a wonderful, rewarding position. So. I had done that for 22 and a half years. And then I was, you know, when I had the mammogram, when I was ultimately diagnosed, I had done like one year at this, at at, uh, um, CUNY college. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So by the time I had this diagnosis, I, I had to focus on that. You know, um, Mm -hmm. I know of people who go to work and they, they can make it through and, and, you know, I, I've had people, yeah, I, I had chemo and then I went to work. I was not one of those <laughs> individuals. I just wasn't. And sometimes you know, it's not so, a choice, too. Like you said, like we have to muster up what we have to do. And yeah, that's you know, unfortunate. You know, I, I, yeah, about, like, I, I ultimately, I ultimately lost my job. Okay. So when it was time for me to go back to work where, you know, 12, you know, because I, you know, if you know anything about the laws, they tell you you can be gone for a year. You're not guaranteed the same position, but you're guaranteed a position. Well, that didn't work out for me. I'm okay now. 
Okay. I'm okay. I'm okay now. Great. And you're keeping this port for another three years. Why is that? They tell you that in case there's a reoccurrence. Oh, okay. So, yeah, in case of reoccurrence, so you keep the port in for five years. That's what you're told. And, you know, I mean, I guess I can understand the rationale behind that, you know, because it is a procedure. You have to get put to sleep to get the port put in Mm -hmm. and no sense in taking it out right away, you know. And ultimately, I do go see the oncologist four times a year now. After your initial surgery, I was going every four weeks to be tested. Now I go four times a year and they can do your blood test through the port. It's so much easier, isn't it? It's so much easier. It's so much easier. So, I mean, I'm okay. I'm okay with keeping, keeping the port in. Yeah, absolutely. I had the choice of keeping the port in or having it removed. I had it removed and... Oh, you did. I chose to because mentally I was like, I needed it out as like, that was like the bookend, right? But now when I go in for the blood work and everything, oh my God, it's so much worse. (laughs) It is, it is. I know because um, you you just have to hope you get a good um, phlebotomist who's tender and, you know, she she knows what she's doing and kind, you know, but I got to tell you, you got to be careful even with the port because they're supposed to spray you with a um, a cream to dull the pain. Yes. And one or two times the nurse was coming at me. I'm like, you forgot to spray me. Right. <laughs> the lighting <laughs> and everything. It makes a difference. Yes, the lighting. It does. It does. Now, do you go in to get your port? I heard like the term, like you're supposed to get it like flushed out to keep it clean. That is true. That is okay. true. So every, I, since I just, I go four times a year now, and that's the recommended time that you should get your port flushed. Okay. And it, the procedure itself only takes about five minutes. It's well worth It's not painful. You just, they just have to spray the lidocaine. Exactly. Yeah. Well, Veronica, I feel like we've covered so many topics here. I'm so glad you took the time to like dwell a little bit on the surgery aspect because I know that's where a lot of our questions come from. And it sounds like you're doing fantastic right now. I'm so happy to hear like your optimism and light at the end of the tunnel with your upcoming surgery being your hopefully knock on wood final one. So is there anything you would like to conclude with that we haven't talked about? Well, you know what? There's so there's the real life aspect that we haven't touched upon. You know, while you're going through this, other things in life may happen and you, you can't even fathom how many things can come into play. Another big factor that, that happened to me is that I was, you know, seeing going out with this man and it, it, it just turned disastrous. But I was able to, like one day I went to the surgeon and I was talking to his assistant and I said, you'll never believe what happened to me in the middle of chemo. You know, I had to deal with, you know, this man and this woman and, and, and it's like you're going through the hardest thing in your life, you know, surviving cancer, surgeries and this and that. And then you have to deal with personal life. Oh, absolutely. You, you know, so that that had a profound effect on me as well. And ultimately, you know, um, they did tell me, well, they said we've heard of other people that are going through the same thing and they get divorced. Yes. Um, you know, so it's, it's horrifying. 
Yeah. The real life factors hit home too while you're dealing with, with these diagnoses. I mean, I, got, I was lucky enough, I got to listen to the podcast the other night with Dr. Carol Weaver. Oh, excellent. She's lovely. Oh my gosh. She, she made me feel so good. She was, you know, she was on this journey or she is on this journey. But I, you know, the part about hers was she met a man mm-hmm. and she ultimately she married. And um, it was a beautiful, you know, story, a love story. So, I mean, so there's good that comes out of, you know, having to go through these breast cancer journeys. And I think that's where my strength has come. So I can end on that note. Even when I lost my hair, I got up, I put my makeup on. The American Cancer Society has a beauty class and they give you beautiful makeup. And they Mm -hmm. teach you how to draw in your eyebrows. And you're surrounded with other women who, who have just recently been diagnosed to have their surgery. So it, you can be, you can survive this. You can come out stronger and you can become the person you never thought you could be. Yeah, it's beautiful. I love that. I feel like I'm a completely different person post-diagnosis and yes. loving this person more and more. Yes. So thank you. Oh, Veronica, this was lovely. I'm so glad. Thank you so much for sharing your story and the heartfelt honesty. Absolutely. I, I, I look so forward to this day and I thank you for allowing me to share my story. And if I could help one person, that's all I want to do. That's, that's what I want to do. Your story already does. I appreciate it, Veronica. This has been a pleasure speaking with you and we'll definitely be in touch. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Lord. You have a great day. You as well. Take care now. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you all for tuning in and listening to today's episode. We release episodes each week, typically on Mondays. If you have a topic idea or would like to be a guest on our show, please contact me at laura at survivingbreastcancer.org. We love hearing from you. Please remember that the content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for informational purposes only, and because each person is so unique, please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions. Views and opinions expressed in our podcast and website are our own and do not represent that of our workplaces. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or corrections. In no way does listening, reading, emailing, or interacting on social media with our content establish a doctor-patient relationship. Until next time, keep on thriving.